Good morning and welcome to worship here this morning. It's good to be here in the the Lord's house on the Lord's day with the Lord's people. So if you would turn your Bibles, uh, Gail has asked for John chapter 3, St. John chapter 3. For just some brief comments before we read, then we'll, we'll have prayer. This passage we're getting ready to read this morning is not very popular in today's world. The Word of God and Jesus proclaims quite a few truths that fly in the face of um, modern philosophy and academia, politics, so on and so forth. And we can see the, the manifestation of that, I think, especially in the recent history in this country. Um, it's, it's interesting, this was predicted um, well over 100 years ago by the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche in the late uh, 1800s of the um, the German philosopher, and he had a, he's famously quoted for saying that God is dead. And I don't believe that Nietzsche was saying that as a celebratory proclamation, but more as a realization of as the sciences and rationalism was coming about, he predicted the falling apart of the moral fabric of society. So I'm going to read a small quote from uh, one of his, his writings, um, and I think you can see how it may, may apply to us today in 2020 as we look at the world around us, and then I want to go to the word for the hope and the promises that we can find there. So Nietzsche said, God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves being the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to cleanse ourselves? What festivals of atonement what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatest of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? So there's a lot of hopelessness in that statement. Nietzsche was realizing that as, as a society was moving on that we had created this... Um, this system of, of, of thought that doesn't leave us with much hope for atonement. He talks about how can we wipe the blood off our knives? Is there, what kind of water can we use to cleanse us now that God is dead in, in the modern thinking world? So let's go now to John chapter 3, and I, I hope I can, you can see the parallels I'm trying to pull here of the truth of the word of God that Jesus proclaims that um, God is not dead for one. Praise his name. And there is hope beyond this life. We do have entrance into the kingdom of God through, through Jesus, as we'll read here about Nicodemus, um, that um, God did so love the world that he sent an atonement and an offering. So Nietzsche is in the grave for a long time, and he's dead. Um, but praise the Lord, God is not dead. So let's go ahead and begin reading here in the first verse of John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water 
and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily I say unto thee, We speak that we, may, we, speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that cometh down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. But every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should, should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anan near to Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom that thou bearest witness, be, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing, except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what, hath, and what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath sent to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Amen.
Um, yeah, we'll, we'll stop right there. Um, so glad for the word of God this morning and the truth that we read here in the third chapter of John, um, that we can have life through faith in Jesus Christ and that promise that is given to us. Um, so we're going to do prayer requests. If there is any prayer requests, please make them known. And um, Zach, would you pray for us? What are your needs? Yes, Cheryl. Yeah. All right. Pray for Steve with his next surgery on Friday. Anybody else? Okay. Let's go to prayer. Glory be to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Amen. Hallelujah. Good morning. Welcome to worship. It's a pleasure to see all of you here, especially you visitors. We just come together to worship the Lord, to exalt his name together. And while we're doing that, just to have fellowship one with another. What a glorious day the Lord has made for us to be, to be glad in and to worship him. We've been reminded that we live in a complex and a complicated and a confused world. And you know, just a simple message of good news that is 100 percent true really appeals to me John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life just a simple message of good news that is 100% true That verse is our text this morning. We have entitled our message, For God So Loved. A call of mercy, for God so loved. How long will he yet call? How many more calls of mercy will there be? We'd like to start out the message this morning by asking three questions to ourselves, to our own hearts. <clears throat> How am I representing Jesus Christ? <clears throat> How am I experiencing Jesus Christ? How is the church representing Christianity? I'd like for you to think about those three questions a little. How am I representing Jesus Christ? 
How am I experiencing Jesus Christ? How is the church representing Christianity? For God so loved. You know, I think that part of that verse, to me, the way I understand the Bible, was at least one of the purposes for creation. So that the love relationship could be expanded beyond the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to include mankind. For God so loved. For God so loved the world. We've been reminded of that a good bit this morning already too. The world is simply the people. The living souls that God made, that he placed in a living body, and that he breathed his spirit into. That's what he loved. The world, the people. He did not love the worldly system that has engulfed and enslaved men in sin and evil, but he loved the people. The world includes all peoples of the earth. God loves the people, but he hates sin. His wrath is kindled against sin. So God loved, and then he gave. He gave his only begotten son. Jesus came into the world, into our realm, right where we live, right here, today, now. He was made in our likeness, in the likeness of flesh. But he was all God. He was God in the flesh. We all know that. Perfect and sinless. He took the weight of the sin of all mankind, and he made a perfect sacrifice for that sin on the cross. The cross. He experienced full wrath of God for my sin. He experienced death for my sin, and he experienced separation of God for my sin. You know, this chapter says that Jesus knew that it would be that way. Verse 14 of this chapter says that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so he must be lifted up. He knew that, but he came anyway. The cross... That is a vital and central theme of truth. The message of the cross that Christianity puts out to the world cannot be overstated or overemphasized. The cross, it is vital. You know, I think of the Old Testament writer. And he described the cross. 
He put it in words like this. He said, Jesus poured out his soul unto death. That same writer in that same chapter says words like this. Not only did Jesus pour out his soul unto death, but Father God saw that travail of his soul and he was satisfied. And more than that, it even pleased Father God to bruise his son and to cause his son grief, to pour out his wrath on him for my sin. Do I understand that? For God so loved that he gave. You know, the cross is the central message of Paul's preaching. He said, as he started one of his letters to one of the churches, he said words like this, I am determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross, the central vital theme, a message that will not be overemphasized too much. Well, let's look at the first part of this verse. For God so loved. So God's love is unconditional. That's the way I understand that. You know, I think about Paul again. He wrote that God commended his love toward us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The unconditional love of God for mankind, his creation. How many people you think believe in the unconditional love of God? We already said what kind of a world we live in. A world that's ravaged by sin, disease, death, disappointment, discouragement. You fill in the blanks. It can go on and on. So the unbelieving world would, does not believe in the unconditional love of God. How could a God who is love, and that's the way he's described in the Bible, God is love, how could he allow all of those things to happen if he's a God of love? He didn't want it to. That happened simply because Adam chose the wrong choice. It was not God's design. It's my fault. That's why things are like they are today. It's not God's fault. So, um, how many people today really believe in God's unconditional love? How many believers believe in that? How about believers who were once uh, true to God and they've turned their back on him? They must not believe in the unconditional love of God. Let's just say that uh, we'll just take a poll today of 100 believers, and we'll ask them to search their heart and to, to give an answer whether they really believe in the unconditional love of God. You know, it's just a real struggle for me in my heart 
to believe in the unconditional love of God if I don't believe in the conditional part of this verse. God's love is unconditional, but the conditional part of this verse is whosoever believeth. That is salvation, and that is what should draw my heart to God's unconditional love. Well, I want to read uh, about three verses in this chapter again. And you can follow along here if you would like to. <clears throat> Let's read the 17th verse. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now let's read the last verse. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now let's go back to the 18th verse. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Without the condition of believing, then all men see is condemnation for their soul. They cannot see the unconditional love of God. They only see the law that has already condemned them. <clears throat> the law condemns Christ came to save. That's what these verses say. Paul wrote another book to a church, and he said words like this. He said, There is now therefore no condemnation to they which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. <clears throat> so let's think about uh, Christ's motive and heart for coming. When he knew all this was going to happen, why did he come? Well, he came to do his father's will. That's pretty evident. And we read a lot of places in the Gospels where he presents that to us, that he came to do his father's will. He came to represent his father to us in a way that we could understand. But he also came to, com to keep and to complete in perfection all of the law of God. And to do that, it took a perfect lamb in sacrifice. We were going to go to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and study some of the verses there together. We're not going to do that, but I'm going to give you that for your homework. I want you to go to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, and I'd like for you to study that chapter verse by verse. 
I think you'll see in that chapter the Lamb of God sacrificed for sin at the cross, an humble lamb to the slaughter. You see, Jesus did not come in military might, in physical beauty, or in political power. He came as a lowly lamb. Now I want to illustrate. I want each of us to picture, let me picture right out here before us in the, in the let's, let's just say the yard out here is a, is a big grassy meadow. And in that meadow, on, in one half of it, I want you to picture a lamb there. And in the other half of that meadow out in the middle, I want you to picture a lion. A lamb in one half of it and a lion in the other half of it. How am I representing Jesus Christ? How am I experiencing Jesus Christ? How is the church representing Christianity? I want you to keep that image in your mind of the meadow with the lamb and the lion. God so loved the world Men and women under condemnation of divine law, living in unbelief, enslaved by sin, evil habits, evil practices, unfit for the presence of God, without hope of ever going to heaven. God loved those people. That's you and I. I've got another question. I'd like for you to think about this question. Do religious expectations point people's focus in the right direction? I'm going to say that again. I want you to get that. Do religious expectations point people's focus in the right direction? Now let's go out here to the meadow. Let's go to the half of the meadow that's got the lamb in it. You know, I think all of us would agree that that lamb would be real approachable. In fact, I think that lamb out there in the meadow would be an attraction to us. It'd be hard for us to stay away from that lamb. That's just the way they are. So a great work of mercy and grace was accomplished by God at the cross. Again, we're going to use a few phrases from the different letters that Paul wrote to the churches about the cross. We're just going to pick a few out at random. He said that the Old Testament ordinances were abolished by the cross. He said that I was reconciled to God by the cross. He said that I have peace through the blood of his cross. And there's more. What he's saying here 
is God has provided for repentance, for justification, and for cleansing at the cross. The power of the cross, the invitation of Jesus. He was made like we are in our likeness. He felt the weight of our sin. He felt all the heaviness of my flesh. Well, you'll find that out when you study Isaiah 53. He felt it all. In his own words, a few chapters later here in John were like this. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'm going to draw men to me. That should have an awakening effect on my soul and my heart today. That's a call of mercy to mankind. Today, in our modern English, Jesus would say, I know your heartache and your pain. I've experienced it all at the cross. Come to me and unload it all. He wants every heart to experience forgiveness, freedom from the bondage and the weight of sin, and the joy of his life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The message of the gospel. So I have another question. Am I representing Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world? Now let's go back out to the meadow again. And let's go to the other half of the meadow. There's a lion out there. How many of you are going to walk out there and approach that lion? Maybe he's couched out there on all fours. How many people want to walk out there to that lion? You know, I would just suggest if you're like me, there'd probably be a pretty strong aversion of just walking right out there and walking up to that line. I don't think you'd want to do that. You know, when the world sees only an exalted God high on his throne with a lot of rules to keep and judgment for not keeping those rules. They feel that he's unaware and uncaring of their personal struggles. There's a strong aversion from a God like that. Sinners turn away in fear and rejection. They do not believe 
a God that has unconditional love for them, if that's all they see. You know what? Today, churches are full of people struggling to live up to religious expectations. Now, I want to be clear here. I did not say living true to biblical principles. I think the Bible's real clear on holy living and keeping the commandments of God. But that is a result of the joy of salvation and a changed heart at Calvary. That's what holy living's about and keeping the commandments of God. It's not the fear of condemnation. I'll never be able to live a holy life just because I fear condemnation. It'll never work. So does the church today represent Christianity as a place of healing for the wounded? or as a place of performance for the fittest. How am I representing Christ? How is the church representing Christianity? A healing balm for the soul or a performance for the fittest? A call of mercy or a call of judgment? Men are pardoned, they're cleansed, and they are transformed to experience victory and salvation by the Lamb at the cross. That cannot be experienced by any type of creed, system, theory, and you fill in the blank. Only through the name and the power of Jesus Christ is salvation experienced. The word says there's no other name given to men under heaven whereby we must be saved except by Jesus Christ. How am I representing Jesus? You know, someday he's going to come like that lion, but today he is the lamb. Remember, there's an attraction to the lamb, and there's an aversion to the lion. So I have another question. How many Christians today are experiencing peace, satisfaction, contentment, and victory in their Christian experience? 
Or is life just a continual struggle? The same struggles and the same vices over and over again with repeated failure and defeat. Let's make that personal. How about me? Well, you say, oh, I, I believe the doctrines of the Bible and I accept them as the word of God. I believe in Holy Spirit empowerment. I pray, study the Bible, attend church. I'm active in community witnessing. But all the while, I know Deep right down in here, something's missing. What is that void? Why can't I get rid of it? Oh, I talk to Jesus in the morning, and I talk to him at night. And if I've got a crisis during the day, I'll talk to him. And all the rest of the time, I'm employed with my thought and activity and secular activities. And then I expect victory. You know, I think of another verse that Paul wrote as he started a letter to one of the churches. And he ended one of the chapters in that letter with words like this. But we have the mind of Christ. You know, when my mind dwells on Christ, my character is molded to Christ. I think there's a verse in the Old Testament, probably in Proverbs, that says about like this, is a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Paul would remind us that to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. He also would remind us that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. I must experience Jesus Christ as a living, real, loving, divine person in relationship to be transformed and experience victory moment by moment. So how can that happen? We still have a lot of secular responsibilities to take care of. So how will I have relationship with Jesus 24-7? How could that possibly be? I want to illustrate this. 
by an experience that Shirley and I have once in a while. On occasion, once in a while, we'll have breakfast later in the morning. And our table that we eat at sets in front of an east window. And where I sat at the table is on the west side of the table looking out the east window. And when it's later in the morning and we sat at that table for breakfast, that sun comes in that window and across that table so brightly that I can't hardly even see Shirley's face a couple feet in front of me. And you know, if I look out that window and look at that sun for just a little bit, everything else I look at, I see through that sun. That's just the way it is. And you know, that's exactly the way it is spiritually. If I'm concentrated and looking at him full, everything else I see, I'll see through him. Just ask him. Just ask him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. May you go forth and represent Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God bless you.